If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, and you can go to chapter 13. And as you do that, allow me to remind you of John Milton's words from Paradise Lost, who said the following, Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition. Though in hell, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven were the words that Milton placed on Lucifer's lips. Ambition is what drove Lucifer into the fall. A pastor has said before, ambition is a cruel master. And if you think about our world, ambition is prized, it's valued, it's respected in our world. Consider some of the famous individuals in history who've talked about ambition. For example, a famous Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, in the 6th century B.C., said the following, Big results require big ambitions. Or Anthony Trollope, a Victorian writer in England, said this, It is a grand thing to rise in the world. The ambition to do so is the very salt of the earth. Mark Twain wrote, Keep away from those who try to belittle your ambitions. Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor in the second century and a philosopher, wrote the following about ambition. A man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. The Webster Dictionary defines ambition as an ardent desire for rank, fame, or power. Our world is bent toward ambition. In the Roman Empire, for example, ambition was a term that was associated with the politicians. They would walk around the city of Rome looking for votes, and they were willing to promise anything and to deliver anything that they could deliver within their power because of their love for honor and respect in a specific office. It was all about self-promotion at any cost. The Apostle Paul is the only New Testament writer who picks up this term, ambition, that was famous in the ancient world and adopts it to the Christian life. And he does so in three passages. In Romans chapter 15, verse 20, Paul writes, I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel, not where Christ was already named. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your own hands. And in 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says, We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So he tries to reshape our understanding of ambition, making it Godward focused. And he says, the Christian ambition is to be a gospel proclaimer, the one who lives a life of peace and productivity, and the individual who has the singular devotion to please the Lord Jesus Christ. But as much as we understand that that is our goal and that should be our aspiration, our self-promotion interrupts that godly aspiration. Consider the disciples of Jesus, James and John. They wanted to elevate themselves above their peers, the other ten disciples, and so they sent their mother to appeal to Jesus and say, can you promise that in your kingdom, James and John will sit on your right and on your left? That's ambition. The disciples of John the Baptist at one point complained to John the Baptist saying, the one who you baptized, Jesus, he's baptizing also, and many are coming to him. John the Baptist was the first on the preaching scene. He even preached for King Herod. Uh, He has significant influence and fame. And so his followers became jealous on his account. And John the Baptist's response is as follows in John chapter 3. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who is from above is greater than all. John the Baptist's response to his disciples that his life is to make Christ supreme is the right perspective for every Christian when we think about our life direction, our aspiration and our ambition. But that fails even with the best of us. George Mueller is a hero in the Christian world. He's a man who's known to be a man of prayer. God answered so many of his prayers. He was a man who cared for orphans, but even he admits to ambition and envy. He talks about his co-pastor in Bristol, England, 
His name was Henry Cake. And he was becoming more and more prominent in the church. The people began to love his preaching more than George Mueller's. He was a greater scholar, a Hebrew scholar, a classicist. And so he confesses in one of his writings that he became envious of him. And in order to shepherd his own heart, George Mueller quotes the words of John the Baptist and decides to elevate Henry, his co-pastor. We're all tempted, no matter how godly we are, toward ambition, to climb the ladder, to establish our brand, to advance our cause, our comfort, our ministry, our little kingdom in this world. And so when others begin to outpace us, we become jealous. And sometimes we even interfere in their ministry. You see, the ambition for something greater was the cause of Lucifer and the cause of the fall of Adam and Eve. They both fell for the same sin or the same ambition. They wanted to be like God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is a daily struggle. We need to die to ourselves, and instead of advancing our own causes and our own kingdom, we are to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. We need to examine our hearts. If we truly are living according to the principle that John the Baptist had, he must increase, I must decrease. And there was one individual in the Old Testament, Jonathan, who lived with that motto, even at the expense of his own kingship. Jonathan enters the story in 1 Samuel chapter 13 about 3,000 years ago. It's 11th century B.C., about 400 years after Israel entered the Promised Land. Israel is now no longer a tribal confederacy. It is ruled by a king. There's a monarchy that has been established. King Saul is the first king of Israel, and he is the father of Jonathan. When King Saul enters the scene, you can see that in 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12, he is described as tall, dark, and handsome. In fact, in 1 Samuel 9 and in 1 Samuel 10, it says this about him. There was not a more handsome person than he among the Israelites. And he was taller than anybody else. It's a hard verse for me to accept, standing at 5'8". And uh, just a couple more inches would have been nice. Saul is loved. He's handsome, he's tall, he's dark. Everybody loves him. And thankfully, when he begins his reign in chapter 11, he establishes himself as a warrior, as a defender of Israel. In his war with the Ammonites, he's successful. And then in chapter 13, we meet his son, Jonathan. Jonathan is introduced in verse 2 and in verse 3. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-haven. When the people of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. So now we have an introduction of Jonathan. Jonathan is about 24 years old at this point. He's second in command. He has control over a third of Saul's army. And they are about to go to war with the Philistines because of Jonathan's provocation. He destroyed a military outpost in a covert military operation. The Philistines are upset, and so now they march against Israel, and they bring 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and many, many soldiers. Jonathan is introduced as a man of war. And the people in Israel, you saw that in verses 6 and 7, they are afraid. They're hiding in pits and cellars and caves. Some of them even betrayed Israel by crossing over, in verse 7, to the Philistine territory and began to fight against 
Saul and his army. In verse 8, Saul waits for Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice, which would then launch the war against the Philistines. But Samuel is delayed. Saul waits for seven days. He finally becomes impatient, and so he offers the sacrifice himself. And just as he's about to finish, Samuel shows up. And Samuel tells him in verse 13, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure The Lord had sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept the command of the Lord. Saul became prideful, ambitious, and he did the unthinkable. He crossed the line between king and priest. Those were two separate offices. Samuel was the priest. Saul was the king. But in his impatience, he crossed the line and he offered the sacrifice. And because of that sin and disobedience, God decides to take the kingdom away from him. This is the first mention of Saul being rejected by God as king. And it's the first allusion to David taking over over sometime in the future. If you fast forward in chapter 15, you see Saul's additional disobedience. God tells him to destroy the Amalekites completely. He doesn't. Samuel shows up again, and five times in 1 Samuel 15, it says, God rejected Saul. Twice God says, I regret that I made him king over Israel. You see, what we learn in chapter 15 is that it doesn't matter what position you hold. It doesn't matter what role you play. It doesn't matter how successful you were in the past. God will replace you in his plans if you disobey him. Nine times chapter 15 says, listen, listen, listen to the word of the Lord. And Saul did not listen. And he disobeyed. And God replaced him. Because verse 22 says, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wanted obedience, not simple sacrifices. But before Saul is replaced, as king enters his son onto the stage, Jonathan. And the first introduction we have, we see that he's a man of war. But in chapter 14, he takes the stage even more prominently. And we are introduced to Jonathan as a man of faith in God's salvation. Jonathan is a man of faith who believes in God's salvation. And that is vividly seen in chapter 14. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Now, the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor. This is his bodyguard. Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. Verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan left. Jonathan arises as the deliverer in Israel in this chapter. Saul is sitting under the pomegranate tree with Ahitub, with Ahijah, the priest. Now, Ahijah is the great-grandson of Eli, the rejected priest back in chapter 3. So you have a rejected king sitting next to a rejected priest. In God's economy, waiting for something. Jonathan decides to take charge. He takes his bodyguard and they decide to go and attack the Philistines. They did that back in chapter 13 successfully. They're about to do it again. And in verse 6, in the middle of the verse, Jonathan says to his young men, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of the circumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. In verse 10, he says, the Lord has given them into our hands. Verse 12, the Lord has given them into our hands. It hasn't happened yet, but he's so sure that God is on his side, that God is going to help Israel, that he puts this as if it already has happened. The Lord will make this happen, and he doesn't need an army of 600. He only needs two faithful individuals. In verse 6, He says, perhaps the Lord will work for us. This isn't doubt or uncertainty because the next line nuances 
his perspective. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. In other words, he believes that God can use him and his bodyguard to accomplish deliverance for Israel. The result of his actions is that 20 people are killed of the Philistines. And in chapter 14, verses 15, 19, and 20, it says the Philistines are trembling. There's confusion in the camp, and there's great commotion. And in verse 23, it says the Lord delivered Israel that day. Deliverance took place as Jonathan anticipated. But in the next verse, in verse 24, it says, Israel was hard-pressed. Israel was hard-pressed. Why? Because Saul had put the people under an oath. The fault isn't placed on the Philistines. The fault is placed onto the king, King Saul. Because King Saul decides to ask the people or mandate to the people to fast. Now, you would imagine the enemy is the one who tries to starve in the middle of war. Not your own king is trying to cause you to be famished as expecting you to fight. The severity of the battle was difficult for the people because of Saul. And they became, in verse 31, extremely weary. They were worn out. Saul is trying to correct the situation. He sees that God is no longer with him. God has rejected him back in chapter 13. And so he decides to drag the ark into war in verse 18. He's trying to now appeal to the presence of God as much as possible. Let's bring the ark here. Then it says, let's, let's put an oath. Let's fast. Maybe we can manipulate God into providing victory if we fast. There was no Old Testament law in the Torah requiring the soldiers to fast. Then in verse 35, he builds an altar. And it says it's the first altar that he built to Yahweh. Now understand this. Saul is about 60 years old at this point. He's been the king for 28 years. And this is the first altar that he builds to Yahweh. If you know your Old Testament, the altars signify God's presence, prayer, sacrifices, a relationship with God. Saul is nearly 60 before he does this for the first time. That speaks to the distance in his relationship with God. And in verse 37, he prays, and God is silent. God is silent. Because all Saul is doing is performative religion. Bring the ark. Let's build an altar. Let me offer a prayer in the middle of a crisis. And maybe God will deliver us. There are two occasions on which Saul prays. Here and in chapter 28. In both occasions, God is silent. There are two episodes when David prays in this book. And in both episodes, God answers David and provides deliverance. There's a contrast that is being put forward by the author. God does not want to talk to Saul. If you remember in chapter 3, Eli and his corrupt priesthood, God began, God stopped talking to Eli as well until Samuel shows up and he begins to talk to a little child, not to the priest in charge. And now we have Saul, the rejected king, along with the rejected priest, and God does not want to speak to them. The irony of all this is even beyond this. Saul, the name Saul actually means the one asked for. Back in chapter 8, the people asked for a king, just like the other nations. He's going to go in front of us and fight our wars. They asked for a king, and God says, this is the one you asked for, Saul. And now the one who was asked for is asking God, and God is silent. So Saul puts the people under an oath, hoping that self-denial will move God in his favor. The plan backfires, verse 31. The people are tired, and they commit a sin in verse 32. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Now, this is a violation of the Old Testament law. They weren't supposed to eat with blood. And now there's a problem that they have to face. And Saul is confused on why God isn't responding to him. 
And so he wants to find out who violated the oath. There must have been an offender. And so they cast lots. You can see that in verses 32 through 35. And finally, in verse 42, the lot was cast and Jonathan was taken. Now, back in verse 29, Jonathan had eaten some honey. He was away from the military. He didn't know about the oath. He ate some honey. He regained some strength, it says in verse 29. And he was confronted by one of the warriors who said, Don't you know that your father put us on the oath not to eat? And this is what Jonathan says in verse 29. My father has troubled the land. With that statement, he takes us back to Joshua, Joshua 7. When Achan took some of the forbidden gold from the city of Jericho, stole it, hid it in his tent, the Israelites then go to Ai to fight that battle. They lose, and God tells Joshua it's because of Achan. And Joshua says, you have brought trouble into Israel. It's a war scene back in Joshua 7. It's a war scene in 1 Samuel 14. The same language is used to describe the calamity that Saul has brought unto Israel because of his oath. But Jonathan is taken through the casting of lots. And in verse 43, it says, Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you will surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people step in and preserve his life. Now those words should have brought chills to Saul. Because he spoke them back in chapter 11 at the very end of the chapter. At the end of the war with the Ammonites, Israel is successful. Saul is their king and leader. And some of the people who initially rejected Saul as king now began following him. And some of Saul's loyalists said, we should kill these individuals. They weren't with us from the beginning. And this is how Saul responds in verse 13 of chapter 11. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul stepped in and protected those individuals because God delivered. Now the people have to step in between Jonathan and his father because he's about to kill his own son, not seeing that God used him to deliver Israel. But more importantly, what we see happening in chapter 14 is a transfer. Saul has been rejected back in chapter 13. In chapter 11... Three times the term deliverance or salvation is applied to Saul, the deliverer. The deliverance has come because of his work on behalf of Israel, because of his war. Now that term is applied to Jonathan four times in chapter 14. The deliverer has been replaced. Now it's Jonathan that God is using to deliver Israel. And you can imagine the ambition and the envy and the jealousy that rises up in Saul's heart. And so he's about to kill his own son because he doesn't want to be replaced. That's the theme of 1 Samuel. The humble are exalted and the prideful are humbled. We see that happen from Eli to Samuel. We see that happen from Saul to Jonathan and then from Saul to David. God will always find his faithful servant. And now Jonathan is being exalted as the deliverer in Israel. Why? Because Saul stopped seeing the Philistines as God's enemies. In verse 24, he says, these are my enemies. I will avenge myself of them. In other words, it's a personal vindictive agenda for him. It's no longer about God being protected, his name being venerated. Whereas Jonathan, back in verse 6, he says... Let's go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It's a theological term indicating a distance between Yahweh and the Gentiles. They are not the people of God. So Jonathan still understands that the Philistines are God's enemies, whereas Saul has now begun to see them as his personal enemies. 
So Saul disobeys, and he relinquishes his role, or he is replaced, rather, as the deliverer. And Jonathan rises as the deliverer in Israel. He worked with God. He's the only one in the Old Testament who's given that description. He worked with God. But then Jonathan fades off the scene for a few chapters, and a new hero arises, David. In chapter 16, David is secretly anointed as the next king. In chapter 17, David kills Goliath. David is handsome, he's courageous, he's godly, and he's a musician. He's got the full package. And everybody falls in love with David. He kills lions and tigers and bears and Goliaths. The na- he, he takes the nation by storm. He's on the cover of the GQ magazine in Israel. And on men's health. He's a warrior. He's got to be on men's health. The ladies of Israel begin to write songs about him. This is the beginning of modern Israel pop music. Look at verse, uh, verse 6 and 7 of chapter 18. The women come out and they sing and they play. Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. A little bit of rhyming going on there, right? Thousands, thousands. Everybody falls in love with David. In verse 16 it says, all of Judah and all of Israel loves David. Saul's daughter Michal, Michal loves David. Verse 22, all of Saul's servants love David. More importantly, Jonathan loves David. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says the following. came about when he, that is David, had finished speaking to Saul. This is right after the Goliath story. That Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. And here we now see a man who had faith in God's salvation, now a man who is humble before God's anointed. Jonathan, in this part of the story, is a man who is humble before God's anointed. David was anointed in chapter 16. We don't know if Jonathan knows that yet. We don't know if Saul knows that yet. But we do know, and we can see how Jonathan responds. And this is where the two princes meet. Jonathan is the heir apparent. He's the number two in charge of part of the army under Saul. David has been anointed as the next king. He's now the prince as well. And their story intersects in this chapter. Now, Jonathan is about 20 years older than David. We know that because by the time David is born in the year 1040 B.C., Jonathan is already a commander of the armies. And Numbers 1.1 says that the Israelites should not put a man into the military service before his 20th birthday. And so he's at least 20, maybe a little bit older, but there's at least a 20-year gap between David and Jonathan. And so Jonathan functions as a father figure to David because, in verse 2, it says, Saul kept David in the royal residence, not letting him return to his father's house. So Saul wants David around. He plays for him. He fights for him. If you read the rest of chapter 18, he sends him on missions to accomplish various victories against his enemies. And Jonathan meets David, and his soul is knit to the soul of David. The imagery there is of bricks being cemented together. You cannot destroy a wall of bricks without a sledgehammer. This is a deep friendship. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says that Jonathan delights in David. The imagery there is honor and respect. He loves him as himself in verse 1 and verse 3 in chapter 20, verse 17. And what we see happening as the story and the friendship develops is that Jonathan expresses Christ-like humility to David. He exemplifies Philippians 2.3. Consider others as more important than yourself. What Jonathan is about to do cannot be explained apart from the work of the Spirit of God in his life. Because in verse 4, he strips himself of the robe, the armor, the sword, the bow, and the belt. 
and hands it to David. A man's dress in that time signified his position and status in the society. Jonathan's dress would have been one of a prince. By taking all that off and handing it to David, what he is saying is, I'm handing my position to you. You are the new prince. And they make a covenant, it says, which meant that they took an animal, cut it in half, walked through the middle of that animal, and said, if we don't hold up our end of the bargain, each of us, may that be done to us. Well, what is that expectation? Well, first of all, Jonathan promises to transfer the kingdom to David. We know that because he says this to David very directly back in chapter 20. You will be king, and I will be next to you. You will be king, actually chapter 23, verse 17. You will be king, and I will be next to you. That's his commitment, 23, 17. But secondly, what he wants from David is is explained in chapter 20, verse 15. He says, You will not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So they made a covenant that day, verse 16. So Jonathan wants a promise from David that when he becomes king, when all the enemies are subdued, he will not kill Jonathan's offspring. Because it was custom in that time period, when a new king rose to power, he would execute the entire previous royal family to avoid a future mutiny. And Jonathan wants to secure his family lineage to continue, and so he makes this covenant with David. David wasn't anyone worthy of such a covenant. David came from Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says that Bethlehem is called little. We respect and love Bethlehem, Bethlehem because David was born there and Jesus was born there. But at that time, Bethlehem was just a little village off the map. That's where David was from. Beyond that, David was a rival to Saul and to Jonathan. Jonathan is the heir apparent. He's supposed to be king. And you can imagine how many times he would have heard from his father, in all those years, you will be king one day. The story in 1 Samuel presents Jonathan and Saul next to each other 26 times. They fought their battles together. They died together. They were buried together. David sings a song at their funeral to both of them. They had their funeral together at the same time. And then in chapter 20, verse 2, Jonathan says, Saul does nothing great or small without disclosing it to me. In other words, we see a man, Saul, who completely trusts his son, his right hand. And then this son is about to transfer the kingdom to David. He was being prepared to succeed, but something happened. Something happened that caused Jonathan to transfer his primary allegiance to David in regards to kingship. He stayed loyal to his father until the very end. He went to that war at the end of 1 Samuel, and he died with his father at the war, in the war with the Philistines. But what we see happening is Jonathan seeing how God is now with David. In verse 5 of chapter 18, it says, David went out whenever Saul sent him. And he prospered. In verse 15 of the same chapter, it says, Saul that saw that David was prospering greatly. In verse 12, it says, the Lord was with him, but he departed from Saul. In verse 14, David was prospering because the Lord was with him. And the same thing is said in verse 28. So multiple times in the story, we see God is with David and he is prospering. And Jonathan is observing all this. And Jonathan hasn't forgotten chapter 13 where Saul has been rejected. He hasn't forgotten chapter 14 where Saul's prayers have not been heard by God. He hasn't forgotten chapter 15 where the kingdom was torn from Saul. 
He hasn't forgotten 1614 where the Spirit of God came upon David and has now left Saul. Jonathan, even if he didn't know about the secret anointing that took place in chapter 16, he could see what was happening. That God is now with David and David is prospering. And so he decides to advance his cause. He did not know that he was advancing the cause of the messianic kingdom. We know that Jesus came through the line of David. He didn't. All he knew is that there is revelation from God that Jonathan, that Saul rather, has been rejected. He's no longer the king that God will keep in place for Israel. And so his response is to now support David. And this is his father's response. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Chapter 18, Saul twice attempts to spear David. That was a private attempt at assassination. In chapter 19, verse 1, he now engages the cabinet, the royal cabinet, and he sends the army after him. If you know how the story develops from chapter 19 all the way for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul spends the next decade of his life pursuing David. The last decade of his reign. What a waste. What a waste of 10 years of his kingship. He was so envious, so jealous, so ambitious. And remember, at least twice he's heard from God, your kingdom is over. And he tries to hold on to it. Even if it means the murder of of David. Even if it means the murder of his own son Jonathan. Because in chapter 19, he throws a spear at Jonathan. Because Jonathan is supporting David. Turn to chapter 20. And you see in verse 30, this conflict that arises between David and Saul. And they were celebrating a festival in that house. David doesn't come because he's afraid for his life. Saul doesn't say anything on the first day of the meal. On the second day of the meal, he asked Jonathan, where's David? And they said, he went home. He wanted to spend some time at home. And this is Saul's response in verse 30 of chapter 20. Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him here to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down, so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Jonathan isn't upset Because he was called the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You usually defend your mom when she's attacked, right? He's not angry because a spear was just thrown at him. He is angry because David was dishonored. And it moved him deeply. He was grieved. That word only appears 15 times in the Old Testament, 15 times, always in the context of deep grief. In Genesis 6, it reflects God's grief over the sin of the entire humanity. In Genesis 45, it reflects the grief and the tears that the the, the brothers of Joseph expressed when they found out this is our brother whom we sold into slavery. The reconciliation takes place, and they are deeply grieved. Here, Jonathan is deeply grieved because David was dishonored. Now, from a human perspective, Saul is right. As long as David is alive, Jonathan will not be king, and Saul's life is also in danger. But Jonathan has a different perspective. He he did not have political ambition. His ambition 
was to advance the kingdom of God even when it hindered his own promotion. He knew that he was supposed to be king. But now here's God's anointed and he's going to be humble before him and advance him, advance his cause. You see, in Jonathan's life at this point, his desires, you can imagine him wanting to be king. He was preparing for it for years and years. His family wanted him to be king. But you can see that this plan is diverging from God's plan. He could have begun to pray against it. He could have begun to solicit counsel from people and say, how do I get through this trial? Because this is my will, and clearly this isn't God's will. His father was fighting God's will. You see, it's easy for us to advance God's will when we're at the center of it, and when we're in the spotlight, when we're receiving the accolades, when you're in charge, when you're successful. But sometimes God's will is to be in the shadows to be in the background, to support an individual who is more gifted than you are in God's providence. There are a hundred people associated with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, but Paul is at the center of the story, and they support him and advance the ministry of Paul. Your role might be in the kingdom of God to support another individual whom God uniquely gifted And so then our plan doesn't always work out in the way that we hope. It collides. And so we affirm that God is all wise and all loving and all powerful, and we praise, I will be done, until it collides with our will. How quickly are we to submit our will to God's will when there's a collision? Because it begins to undermine what we're trying to accomplish in this life because of our ambition. You see, Jonathan made a promise. You will be king in Israel. And he invested the rest of his life to advance David as the future king. And here we move to the third description of Jonathan in this book. We see a man who has faith in God's salvation. We see a man who is humble before God's anointed He was decreasing so that David could increase. But we also see a man who trusts in God's providence. He trusted in God's providence. In chapter 20, verse 42, he tells David, chapter 20, verse 42, go in peace. That's shalom. Have perfect peace. Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be between me and you and be between, will be between my descendants and your descendants forever. This is Jonathan entrusting his future into God's hands. I know I'm supposed to be king, but I'm no longer pursuing that path. I'm going to entrust my life to God's care. And God will take care of me and my descendants. This is trusting God's providence. And we fast forward to the final meeting between David and Jonathan recorded in chapter 23, beginning in verse 14. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Then he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you, and Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. It's interesting that Saul is seeking David every day for four chapters. Can't find him. And Jonathan pretty easily finds him in the next verse. See, God protects his anointed. But more importantly, God encourages his servant. This is the lowest point of David's life. David 
earlier in the chapter, protected the residents of Keilah against the Philistines. And then somebody in the city of Keilah betrays David's location to Saul, so Saul moves toward Keilah. David moves to Horesh. Somebody at Horesh betrays his location to Saul, and Saul now moves toward Horesh. David is surrounded by traitors, even those who he just protected. And David is all alone in the wilderness, knowing that Saul is after him, and God sends Jonathan to encourage him in God. This is the last conversation they had before Jonathan is killed in chapter 31. What a memory to leave behind. He encouraged him in God. And Jonathan says to him, do not be afraid, because David was afraid, because his life is in danger. And he says to him, you will be king, because probably David began to doubt the promise of God from chapter 16, that he would be king one day. Jonathan believes in that promise more fervently than David does in this moment. He's losing hope, he's in despair, and God sends Jonathan to encourage him. To remind him of the word of God. When John the Baptist doubted if Jesus is the Messiah in Matthew chapter 11, he sends his disciples to ask him, are you the one or should we expect another? And Jesus' response to the disciples to send back to to John the Baptist who's in prison is to quote scripture, the Old Testament. He said, this is what was expected of the Messiah. This is what's taking place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul confesses that he was burdened excessively because of the trials in Asia. He was beyond strength. He was despaired even of life. We had the sentence of death within ourselves. This was a low point in Paul's life. Not sure exactly what happened. There's not much insight that we have from the New Testament of what happened in Asia at that time that made him be so hopeless in such despair even of life itself. And then Paul says the following, but we believe in the God who raises the dead. In other words, the word of God and the promises of God are always what encourages us. That is what Jonathan is doing. He's bringing back the promise of God to David's memory. You will be king and I will be next to you. If Jonathan had to encourage David, if Jesus had to encourage John the Baptist, If Paul had to be encouraged, then there are times in our lives when we are so discouraged and there's such significant trials taking place that God has to use his word to encourage us and he does it through other people. You can be that encourager in someone's life. And in that moment, you don't sing a song. You don't remind them of a fun story. You bring them back to the word of God. And said, this is what God promises, and this is what will happen. Jonathan's story doesn't have a happy ending. He's killed in the war in chapter 31, along with his two brothers and his father Saul. What happens between chapter 23 and chapter 31 is Saul continues to pursue David. To add to the tragic pain of Jonathan... He's not mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 along with the other heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. His name is never mentioned in the Bible after this. He played a role in God's kingdom for a moment, a season, to advance the messianic kingdom, not knowing that the Messiah would come through David, only responding to the revelation that he had in front of him David is God's king. I will be loyal to him, and I will advance his cause even if it means giving up my own kingship. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 11, we read that Saul's kingship was judgment on Israel from God. If Jonathan were to continue that kingship, then he too would experience the judgment from God. But Jonathan chose to advance the kingdom of the Messiah. And the people recognized this back in chapter 14. He worked with God. And that is his epitaph in the Old Testament. The man who worked with God. And Paul picks up that language in 2 Corinthians 6. 
and says, We are ambassadors for Christ. We beg you to be reconciled with God and working together with him. We proclaim today is the day of salvation. And in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, We are co-workers. Some are planting, others are watering. God is causing the growth. In other words, we all have a, plan, a role to play in God's plan. And we need to do that faithfully because we are working with God and we are proclaiming today is the day of salvation. God used Jonathan to rescue Israel from the Philistines. God wants to use you to rescue people from hell. It was C.T. Studd who said, Some wish to live within a, as the sound of a church bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. We're called as God's co-workers to bring the gospel into the lives of the people who are headed for hell. That is our responsibility in the kingdom of God to advance the messianic kingdom one soul at a time and we work together with him as we share the gospel with people. And God promises in Isaiah 56 that the one who joins himself to the Lord, the one who will minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, the one who chooses to please him, to this one I will give in my house a memorial, an everlasting name. You may never have a book written about your life. You may not have a mausoleum built over your grave. Nobody may ever mention your name after you pass to heaven. But God says, if you advance the kingdom of Christ, I will give you an eternal name, a memorial forever. If we join in the effort to work with God, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it begins with believing that gospel. That Jesus came to die for sinners. If you have not confessed your sins and repented of them, in other words, turned around and recognized that you have not accepted the kingship of Jesus, you haven't bowed your knee to him, then the call is for you to do so today. Today is the day of salvation. Bow before King Jesus and he will bring you into his kingdom and he will make you a co-worker in the kingdom and ultimately honor you by giving you an everlasting name. The rest of us who love Christ, we need to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ because he must increase and I must decrease. Let us pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word, for the truth of it that encourages us to follow Jesus Christ even at the expense of our own promotion. I pray that you would bring people into your kingdom, even today, those who have resisted the kingship of Lord Jesus. And we thank you for Jonathan, who obeyed you, who followed your word and advanced the messianic kingdom, thereby establishing the Davidic throne on which our Lord Jesus Christ will sit forever. We humbly acknowledge that we don't always do this faithfully, and so we ask for forgiveness. But we also express our desire to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ that has no end and that will never be destroyed for the rest of our lives. Amen.